This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. This morning's scripture comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, Who was my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's Really good to be with you today. If you haven't already done so, uh, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10. There's several under the seats there uh, in front of you. Look on with a device. We're doing some work here. And um, as we get going in our 49th Sunday uh, in, our, in our study through this book, the, bo- uh, the book of Luke, um, <clears throat> as we find ourselves here in this passage, something popped off the page during our first service when Miss Leah was reading this. Um, and I just want to uh, point it out to you all as well. Um, I'm, I totally missed it in studying, uh, and it just it hit me literally in this moment in the last service. So I want you to do something. If you're one to write in your Bibles, I would love to you circle. I'd love for you to circle two words. Okay, so the first one is in verse 32. Find that word likewise and circle it. Okay, now down at verse 37, you'll find that again. Likewise, circle that. And then draw a line between the two. I'm not going to be able to get into what all that means and how that parallels there. But that's not an accident as Jesus is telling the story using these two similar terms, not just in the Greek, but not just in the English, but also found in the Greek. Um, there's, it's important there, okay? Um, and so there's some good thought as to, to what's going on there with the two likewise statements um, that, that you should give yourself to, perhaps with a friend, um, serious thought and prayer uh, to unpack more of what's happening here later, after we get out of our time this morning. So I encourage you to do that. Um, <clears throat> and before we get to uh, the, the context and the text this morning uh, any further, I, I just want to say thanks for the grace that so many of you all extended to me uh, last week during this, this sermon time, uh, where we just spent some time uh, away from Luke, <clears throat> just addressing some uh, hurt and harm, uh, some lament and mourning that so many of us have gone through um, and just really just letting us be encouraged through Lamentations 3, um, Hebrews 11 and 12. It was deep ministry to my heart, and uh, usually on like a good sermon, you know, three of those a year usually is what I get, uh, I'll get maybe, you know, two or three like, thank you, great job, whatever, encouragement things, and it's all so encouraging when that happens. Uh, but, but I've received over 40 uh, different responses from you all in regards to last week. And, uh, and what's interesting is it's not that I did more, I did a lot less. I just read the Bible. And so what you were encouraged by is the power of God at work through the Bible, not through a man, not through a preacher. And that's what happens. That's what happens when you read the Bible. It's what happens when you read the Bible in community. Um, we're just we're captivated. 
um, man, when we come as students, humble, hurting people to, to the Word of God, it changes us. It changes us. And so many of us felt that. I felt that. I know that so many of us did. So um, do something with that. Like, think about that. Like, why, why was it such a stirring moment for us as a church? Um, it was just the Word. So think about how that trickles out uh, and down into your life. I encourage you, give yourself to Scripture. Give yourself to Scripture. Um, I don't think you'll ever regret it. So anyway, I uh, love you. I'm with you. I'm proud of you. I'm for you. I believe in you. I'm pulling for you. I'm on the sideline of your life just cheering and wanting to do everything possible to see you all happy and satisfied, not just in life, because that could mean a million things. But it's one thing, happy and satisfied in God through Christ. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's who, I'm, that's who I am. It's what I'm here for as one of the pastors here um, is to be your biggest cheerleader in life, okay? Um, so anyway, let me pray, and we'll get going in today's passage. So, uh, Father, um, <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you give us um, humility, Lord, that we can receive. Um, Lord, that you would um, dispel the, the pride and the distraction of, of, of many things that would cause us to not be able to um, truly submit to your word and receive it with, with joy and gladness. A lot of times pain and frustration, even of the five minutes before we showed up to this property, can really cause distraction. Um, or it could cause us to only hear this sermon, this text, in a limited scope because of something we're going through. And I pray that you allow us the clarity to lift beyond that. As frustrating and harmful as that situation may be, and that you allow us to see the the big picture, let us see with more clarity uh, that, you, that you would open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts in such a way that we see, hear, experience, and know things that we would otherwise miss because of distraction, because of how, how our current situation in our, in our life is with our parents, with our children, with our spouses, with our roommates, with our professors, with our classes, with the lack of direction or clarity in life, with our loneliness, our hurt, our pain. So many things can distract us and cause us to only look at Scripture in a certain way. And I ask that you illuminate it, make it pop, Lord, make it, get, us, get us above our situation and let us see the true and greater story at work. God, help us in this. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so it was a, a few weeks ago, it was just a, a way of getting some clarity as far as where we are in this story because um, I was just even talking with some of you all before. Uh, some of you all are, are guests and friends and family, and you're just here today, and you're back home uh, later this week. You're going to be leaving town uh, to get back to where you call home, and so you haven't been with us for 49 weeks. You haven't been with us for two weeks. This is it, and I want to give you some context for where we are in the story of, of Luke. So a few weeks ago, Jesus, he sets his face to Jerusalem. Okay? His final journey back to Jerusalem. And in preparation for his final ministry trip through the Middle East on his way to Jerusalem, he sends up on before him not 12 disciples, but 72 disciples to make preparations, to, to, to work through the, the lodging, the, where he's going to be doing some teaching, to, some logistics okay, of, of him being able to use this final trip into Jerusalem uh, for maximum purpose. Okay? And, and as he sends these uh, men and women out, these 72 disciples, they perform uh, many miracles. And they see radical things happen through the power of Christ at work in them. And then Jesus takes it as a moment to teach them that regardless of what they see God do through them, what is most significant is what God is doing in them. In other words, who they are is much more significant than what they do. And Christian, the same is true for you. Okay, so then it's right after all this teaching here that we get into uh, Luke 10, starting in verse uh, 25. So follow along with me. Let's let's do some work here. So, uh, a, a, a behold, a, a lawyer, an expert of the law, not just Ten Commandments, but the 600 and some uh, uh, statutes, ordinances, rules, regulations, um, laws. There's many, many commandments. He's an expert on the law of God. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Wow. That, by the way, that's the most important question, perhaps the most important question that we could ask is what's going to happen to me and how could I ensure that it's pleasant after this life is over? Jesus said to him, he follows up with a question because Jesus is the coolest teacher, the smartest teacher ever. He's not just going to tell him. He wants him to do some work. What's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand it? Well, summarize it for me. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with, think of this, all your heart. No divided heart here, right? Pure, 100% devotion to God. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, not 99% of your strength, 100% of your strength, not with 99% of your mind, 100% of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he just described Jesus. He didn't describe you. He didn't describe me. He didn't describe the lawyer. So the lawyer says, uh, and then Jesus says back to the lawyer, you have, you have answered correctly. Do this. Do this perfectly, and you will live. So here, Anyone who's honest with themselves would know that they can't do this. Certainly not all the time, and certainly not perfectly, and certainly not all the time perfectly with 100% pure motives in doing it. And Jesus knows this about humanity. He knows that about you. He knows that about me. He knows that about this lawyer. It's why he asked this question to begin with. He wants to get more towards the root issue. All right, so in 29... This lawyer desiring to justify himself because he feels that, he feels what you and I feel. When I say 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%, hopefully you don't feel like you're like nailing it. Like, ah, that's me. Yeah, pretty much. Right? Hopefully we don't feel that way. Uh, reality check, that's not any of us, okay? And this man feels it. He feels hopefully what you're feeling. He feels, I know what I'm feeling, and he wants to justify himself. I'm not that bad. Right? He's justifying himself. He says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Well, see, Pharisees, he's a Pharisee. He's a religious type. So he's always one of those that are trying to find the loopholes. If we can find exceptions, loopholes, if, if we can redefine what's being asked, then we'll be able to follow God's law perfectly. Not perfectly, but, you know, perfectly. If they constantly can modify and shift and adjust what's required and being demanded by the law, then they'll be able to follow the law perfectly-ish, but perfectly. Well, in doing this, they fail to truly obey the law, and all of us do. And it's interesting here that this lawyer, he's not asking this question so he can find out who his neighbors are. He's trying to figure out who his non-neighbors are. He's wanting to know who he doesn't have to show this sort of love to, toward, right? He's, wanting to not, he, he's not interested in who can I treat in this loving way. What he's interested in is who can I now mark off the list so I can identify who I have to do this for so that I can accomplish what's being asked. That's what I want to know. Well, it proves that he's, he's totally missing it, right? So who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't answer him directly. I believe that Jesus knew that if he answered him directly, that he, he, he wouldn't get it. And he wants to teach this man. And again, man, Jesus, he's not a jerk, and he doesn't want to be indifferent towards this man. Even though he's trying to test Jesus, even though he's got poor motives, ill motives, very warped and evil motives to try to catch Jesus, like in a, in a verbal crime, so they have something to pin against him when he gets to Jerusalem. Even though all this is true, Jesus sees a man that he can teach and that he can change. That encourages me. That gives me hope. And I hope that gives you hope as well. So let's like, look, look at verse 30. So Jesus replies to this man, who's your neighbor? There was this man. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, now there, just context, these, these people, when they heard that, they would be like, ooh, yeah, why? That's a rough, rough trek of land. That's a rough road. That's rocky. It's dangerous. Uh, the terrain is unpredictable. Um, there's robbers. I mean, like, nobody really goes through there. 
as a man or as a woman. You go there as a group. Like, no fool would go there by themselves, right? So they're familiar with this trek of land. He's, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead to the point of death. And it's believed this man was a Jew that was robbed. And now, by the way, I don't think Jesus smirked a lot, but I think if he did smirk, it would be right here in verse 31. Now, by chance, right, I think Jesus is like, no, everything's providentially ordained by God, right? But he's like, yeah, you know, by chance, a priest, this is somebody who worked in the temple, was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He intentionally shifted lanes. He intentionally walked around. So he saw him. He intentionally went around him. So he didn't show mercy. He didn't engage. He didn't love his neighbor. And again, we must realize in context, in their minds, this made perfect sense. This made absolute sense to the audience around Jesus, to this lawyer, this expert. You see, being kept ceremonially clean was more important for a priest than to show mercy and help others. You were never to sacrifice yourself in order to help others. This was their disposition in how they read the law. Now, nothing that Jesus said at this point would alarm his audience. This is a dangerous road. You can expect to be robbed if you're alone. Like, what was this guy thinking? Like, what a fool. Like, who does he think he is, actually? And, and a priest has zero business messing with the wounded man. So, of course he went around him. What's your point, Jesus? Like, who's my neighbor? You see, this priest, he sees the man. He clearly sees his need and who he is, yet he chooses to do nothing about it except dodge him and go around. Well, verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, now this is someone who works in the temple, Religious disposition here is his, is his uh, profession, and he's an assistant to the priest. When he came to the place, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He doesn't show mercy, doesn't engage, doesn't love his neighbor. Exactly like the priest previously, the Levite, he sees the man, clearly sees the man, clearly sees his needs, sees who he is, yet chooses to do nothing about it. Jesus continues in 33, but a Samaritan, all right, this is where everybody would get a little tense, okay? A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to a place where he was, this wounded man, and when he saw him... He did not go around. He had compassion. Y'all, here in the crowd, Jesus is talking, okay? He's talking to the proud religious, and they get tight, okay? They get uneasy. They get uncomfortable right here. Which, by the way, the real Jesus, he doesn't mind, like, stepping on your toes and hurting your feelings a little bit as he makes his way into your heart to change you, okay? He considers that conviction. That's the conviction of God, and it should lead to repentance, Okay? This is what he's, he's after here. So Jesus brings up Samaritans. Man, why did Jesus have to go and bring up Samaritans in the office? I just want to know who my neighbor is, not who my enemy is. Who's my neighbor? Samaritans. Jesus brings race into this teaching moment, dealing with love, compassion, mercy. He brings up race. You see, most Jews, they, they, they thought that by simply going through Samaria and their valley would, would be great cause for you to have a shower, to bathe, to become ceremonially clean once again because you got dirty by going through their land because they were such lesser class, such lower class. So uh, if, if driving through, if riding through, if walking through Samaria would cause you to have a ceremonial uh, bath and cleansing, of course, talking to one is frowned upon, certainly never touching one. Don't touch one that's wounded and dirty, because they apparently have done something wrong, and they're getting what they deserve. So just back off, back away. This was their thought. You see, technically, Samaritans are half Jewish and half Gentile, and they're known commonly as half-breeds, yet they're not considered Jewish at all by the Jews. They're mostly human, but not fully human. This is the way that they were viewed. 
They were less respected than the Gentiles. You'd be better off being an anti-Jew than part Jew. You'd be better off being Gentile than Samaritan. The Jews didn't see the Samaritans of having any, any hold in the promises of God. They had no part in his covenants. This is what they thought. They had deep-seated resentment and hatred towards the Samaritans, and they condemned the Samaritans. This isn't a new issue. This goes back for hundreds of years, for, for many centuries. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago when Jesus brought race into the picture again with the Samaritans earlier. I believe it was in Luke 9. You see, the Samaritans earlier, uh, or the Jews earlier, hundreds of years earlier, were taken into Babylonian captivity. So many of our Old Testament prophecy books, prophetic books, have to do with this time of exile when they were in captivity under uh, the Babylonian powers. Okay, So while they were taken into exile, many farmers and, and others were left and they intermarried with non-Jews called Syrians. So the Jews considered the Samaritans um, this half-breed Jew, mostly Jew, but, but not entirely Jew, and they viewed them as rebels and, and renegades and dogs. They called them dogs. They literally called them dogs. You're not a person. You're not a human. You're a dog. You're filthy. And at one point, after the Jews were freed from Babylonian captivity, the Jews began rebuilding the temple there in downtown Jerusalem. And the Samaritans showed up with their tools ready to help. You can read about this in Ezra chapter 4 in the Old Testament. They show up ready and eager, humbly wanting to help the people that hate them. And the Jews refuse their help. We would rather it be more difficult on us. We'd rather have to wear out our own tools. We'd rather it cost us out of pocket than to have you touch us or be around us or help us at all. Get out of here. You're filthy. That's horrible. The tension, the arrogance, the pride, the judgment. Jesus brings up Samaritans because he knows just how much the Jews hated them. Knowing how Jews felt about this Samaritan did not harden this Samaritan from helping this Jew. The Samaritan sees not someone identified by their race, not who they are or who they're not. He sees simply a hurting human who needs care and mercy. They can't help themselves. They're going to die unless someone helps. And he sees himself as that someone who's, who's going to help. You know, I was thinking, you know, perhaps a Samaritan is offering to this wounded Jew something that he so desperately wished to receive at one point in his life. And he didn't get it. Remember the words of Jesus? Love, or as he commended the... the lawyer's words, love the Lord your God with everything and your neighbor as yourself. Remember, and he said, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus is giving this example here. He's painting us a picture of what that lawyer's answer to what the law is. He's giving us an answer of what this actually looks like in real time, what it, what it really means. This Samaritan sees the man. He clearly sees his need. He engages him. Unlike the others, he chooses to do something about it. Now, within this parable, Jesus is drawing a contrast between two dispositions of the human heart, but between, between two different attitudes of the human heart. And I believe you're going to resonate with this because we both carry two of these within our human heart. One is judging and condemning, okay? The other is giving and forgiving. One is pride one is based in humility. One is judgment, and one is being merciful. You see, because of racism within both parties, this story is shocking. And, and I hope that I, I just gave you a taste in trying to unpack the context of this story here uh, of just how shocking. But I can't. No matter what I actually could say here, could not paint it unless you had lived there and experienced this. I mean, this story would be shocking for everyone listening because we would expect judgment. It's the opportunity for the Samaritan to get even, kick dirt on the man on the ground and keep walking, spit on him and keep walking. 
We do not anticipate mercy. We anticipate judgment. You see, most people are quick to criticize. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us are very slow to give other people room to change. But Jesus calls us to have an attitude of open acceptance, of mercy. Acceptance, forgiveness, mercy, love, and grace. Again, these are two practices of the human heart. These are two mental choices that we are challenged with daily when we engage anyone around us. These are two attitudes of the heart that Jesus is pressing upon us to think about and challenging us with, judgment and showing mercy. You see, judgment and mercy both deal with how we engage other people. Judgment and mercy rarely is something that we do within. It usually implies something we have to do with others. Now, now judgment is quick to correct. It's eager. Judgment is selfish. Judgment is self-seeking. Judgment crushes. Judgment uh, is about shame. Judgment is constantly fault-finding. Like, where can I find fault? Where can I find that I've been offended? Where has this person done wrong? Judgment is, is, is the attitude is, we have to figure this out right now. Right now. We've got to figure this out. There must be judgment. Let's make a decision. Let's hurry. Judgment comes from a place of pride. Judgment says, I can't trust you. Judgment says, I'm, I'm seeing things clearly, when in reality, they're being deceived, they're being tricked, they're being fooled, but judgment claims clarity. See, judgment is natural. Now, judge, judgment is our, is our own work. We're, this is like a, something we're born with. It's our instinct. It's our natural reflex. Judgment is far too common with us. We're born with it. And we distribute judgment as we've been judged by others. As we're currently being judged and condemned by others is how we judge and condemn and treat others. Judgment is about adding burdens. Judgment keeps a record of wrong. It's got this list. Judgment can't, it just can't let things go. History is cherished. Judgment loves history. Judgment does not like change. Don't talk about the opportunities. Don't talk about the potential. Don't talk about possibilities. Judgment doesn't want to know about all that. Judgment wants to know what is, is, is. Period. No hope. And when there is care given, it's as if they have arrived. Judgment says, now that I no longer need this, now that I no longer need mercy, now that you're just so pathetic and pitiful, here, I'll help you in this way. No one's ever treated people like this, right? No one's ever been treated like this in this room, right? All of us have. Judgment has to do with declaring the ruling, dropping it, and dipping out. Tells you what's wrong. It's constantly writing up estimates for people. You still need this. You still need this. Here's where you're wrong. Here's where you're insufficient. Here's what's lacking. Here's what's lacking. Not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. Judgment. All of us are naturally gifted in judgment. We're really great at it. We're skilled. We're good at sinning, and we're good at judging. Really good. We're average at a lot of other things, but if really, on our resume, those are two things we're excellent at. Experts. Sad, sad but true. And this is mainly because it's how we've typically been treated. So it's a learned behavior. I mean, we live under the mantra, do unto others as others have done to you. That's judgment. And my friend, this is how we treat other people, particularly those who are closest to us. The closer you are in, in life with people, family, marriage, children, in-laws, siblings, neighbors, the, the people that are closest with you in proximity are typically those that are easiest to be just stone-cold judges. We're also gifted and skilled because it's a way of gaining leverage in a relationship that you're going to need later. Again, it's keeping record of wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to use this later. Mm-hmm. 
But mercy's different, y'all. Oh, it's so refreshing. And it's difficult to give mercy. It's difficult to receive mercy. It makes us uncomfortable. If it's pure mercy, it should make us uncomfortable. Because both parties involved are aware that you are releasing leverage. You're intentionally giving up leverage. You know you have power and leverage here, and you're intentionally letting it go. That's part of what forgiveness is. But it also makes us uncomfortable because you have to treat others differently than how you've been treated. Knowing what's been done, to treat someone differently makes you uncomfortable. This is called mercy. Mercy's hopeful, not quick to correct. It's believing all things. It's giving the benefit of the doubt. That is mercy. It's not selfish, it's selfless. It's others seeking. Instead of crushing, it lifts up. Instead of, instead of shaming, it encourages. Instead of fault-finding, it's sympathy-finding. It's empathy-finding. It's looking for places where I can associate and give warmth and care and concern and, and try to feel the burden that you're feeling instead of trying to find fault and add burden. Instead of wanting judgment right now, I need what's fair. It says, you know what? There's a lot here, but we can figure all this stuff out later. Right now, we simply need to be near each other, to comfort each other, and to pray. We'll figure out the other stuff later. Is there other stuff? Yeah, loads. But we're not going to go there. Right now, we're just going to sit. Instead of saying, I can't trust you, mercy says, I'm going to let go of that. I'm going to trust God. Instead of coming from a place of pride, it comes from a place of humility. I mean, mercy still sees things. It's not blind. It's not ignorant. Mercy discerns things. Mercy sees clearly, but mercy acknowledges their own sinfulness and admitting that they could be wrong about this. They could be seeing things through their own uh, eyes and not through the eyes of someone else and how they've experienced this. Mercy is a supernatural work. It's the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. We're not born this way. It's the instinct of Jesus. It's the instinct of the Christian's new nature. And this slowly becomes our reflex. So in other words, we're not born with mercy. We're reborn with mercy. And we distribute mercy, instead of treating others how we've been treated, in judgment, we we help others with mercy and give mercy to others as we have been shown mercy from God and as we're currently receiving mercy from God. So we're not fixed. We're still a work in progress. So we can give patience and grace and mercy with those who are still a work in progress. We've got trajectory, y'all. We've got trajectory. Don't be overwhelmed with, with this relational tension in this moment when you get a microscope and you're so zoomed in like there's a bigger man there's a whole lot bigger picture yeah this is significant yes this is difficult but but look at the trajectory you're on in the big picture of your life that's you'll see a a glimpse but but look at the the large trajectory of the big picture here mercy sees this big picture and it gives hope that this trajectory will go this way Instead of saying, see, it's down, it's always going to be down, it's always going to be this way, judgment, judgment, judgment. Mercy comes under the burden with someone. Mercy's not oblivious. Mercy knows the burden. Mercy knows what must happen to change. It knows what's lacking. It just decides, you know what, I'm going to come under this with you. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. And it doesn't cherish history, it cherishes change Mercy loves hope. I mean, what if we got healthier? What if you, what, what if there was like God showing up here? What if? Mercy says, what if? Judgment says, there's no way, never, no. Mercy cares with you not distributing care as if they've arrived. 
Mercy shows care as they're currently receiving mercy because they know what a sinner they are. And they cherish the fact, as the psalmist says, that his mercies are new every morning because their sins are. (laughs) Our pride is new every morning. Our idolatry is new every morning. We're going to disappoint so many people today. His mercies has better be good today and new and fresh because I'm going at this with still flesh and spirit, this tug of war. I need mercy. So mercy cares in light of this. Mercy doesn't judge unless they're ready to help carry this load with them. They don't just call it out and dip out. Mercy says, okay, I'm going to love you well. I'm going I'm to show you what's lacking, but not to condemn, not to shame or add guilt. I'm, sh- I'm telling you this so that I can come under this with you and let you know I'm in this for the long haul. I'm not quitting. I'm pointing it out so that I can carry it with you. That's mercy. Mercy's full aware of what's wrong, but it's also fully aware of how to move forward and how to care for it. And mercy embraces this not as your job. Mercy says it's our job. We're going to do this thing together. Mercy's there to help. And this is precisely what the Samaritan does, as we're going to see. Let's see his compassion and mercy. Not judgment. Again, everyone's expecting judgment in this story when it, was, when it was told live by Jesus. They're shocked by what they're about to hear. Verse 34. And he went to him, okay, what's going to happen? And bound up his wounds. What? I'm sorry, Jesus. Hold on. You back up a second. He, what did he add to his wounds? Did I hear you say that? He bound up his wounds, and he put healing ointments on of oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal. He lifted him up on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then even the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'm going to repay you when I come back. Friends, the Samaritan was inconvenienced, would you say? He risked getting mugged himself as he took time to stop. If you go this route by yourself, rarely would that happen. But if you do, you keep moving, right? Like as a kid, I lived by the graveyard as a pastor's kid, and my dad would send me up to turn off that light. The custodian didn't turn off. It was always my job at 10 o'clock at night on Sunday nights to go do that. So I would waddle. I was a big kid. I would like waddle my way up there. I would open the door, and I'd hear all these cracks and creaks and then I'd have to come back by, and there's no street light, or it's worse is there is one, and it just turns off right as you're at the graveyard. <laughs> you know how sometimes the street lights will just randomly just turn off? Right? I'm an electrician. I don't know why that happens. Just, I don't know. But just like hurry by the graveyard, Jeremy. Just hurry as fast as you can, which is pathetically slow. And I would try to get by there as quick as possible. That's how you would handle this road. If you had to travel by yourself, you'd be going quickly. Yet this man not only goes slow to see, he stops and gets off his animal and puts bandages. Now, he's not a medic. We're not told that he's a medic. And Luke, being a doctor, if he was a medic, he would point out the fact, oh, he's a medic. He's a pretty good one. Or he was an all right one. He would let us know who he was if he was a medic because Luke was a doctor, a physician. So he took his own blanket, his own shirt, his own clothing. It cost him something, right? To wrap this man's wounds and put bandages on him. And then he sets him on his own animal. What's that mean? Who walked? The Samaritan walked beside his own animal as he had one hand probably holding the wounded Jew from falling off his animal. He abandoned his own plans for the day and for the next. His schedule, who cares? This man needs me. He takes him to a hotel. He pays for all his needs. He pays for his lodging and was willing to come back to ensure the man recovered at his own expense. And so then Jesus asked the lawyer a direct question. He gives him three choices. Look in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? One of the three. He said the one who showed him mercy. And that's clear. And Jesus said to him, you, you go 
and do likewise. You see, the gospel says we're to show mercy because we've been shown mercy. The gospel says we're to love neighbors because we've been loved. You see, we hated God, and yet he was merciful to us. We hated, despised, rejected Jesus, and he loved us and makes us much more than neighbors, much more than friends. He makes us family. You see, ultimately, Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus comes to us when we were his dead, proud enemies, and he did everything to us, for us, needed to save us, rescue us, and give us life. Now, how is it that we're so slow to give mercy to others? You know, this, this interaction here with this Jewish lawyer and Jesus, it proves you can know the right thing and not do it. What's the answer? Love God, love your neighbor. He knew the right thing. You see, you need more than knowledge. You know the right thing. It's just the right thing is going to cost you something. So when we're in a moment when we read Scripture and we embrace this as truth, we have to live under this, we feel weight. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I see this, I know I can't do this with Jill. I can't do this with my kids. I can't do this with my pesky neighbor. I can't do this with my loving neighbor. I can't do this when I know I've been wronged. How much more when people are nice and kind? It's hard to do this. And so when we come to moments like this, we must press into God. We must ask the Holy Spirit to do significant work in our hearts. We must ask him to change us and help us. Help us to, to see the opportunities around us, even within our own families, particularly during this season when we're around each other more and finances are even tighter. That he would help us respond in obedience with humility, mercy, and compassion rather than what is so instinctual, pride, indifference, and judgment. We're experts in one. We need to learn a lot more about the other if we're going to be healthy Christians if we want to submit to his word, if we want to stop making ourselves the exception and embrace this as truth over us, for us. He's going to lead us to help our neighbors. He's going to lead us to help our family. And our neighbors, according to Jesus here, because he doesn't really ever point blank answer it, when you study this, you'll see it's, who is my neighbor? Anyone near me who's in need. So why don't we start with those who are closest to us? Because that is the hardest to live this way with. You know, the Samaritans had all the reasons in the world to hate this Jew. He had all the rights to just walk right past this man. He but he chose to forego his rights in order to love this man and potentially save his life. So the question is, can we move beyond what we feel we're entitled to? in order to learn mercy more ourselves as we show mercy more to others? Do we live under the mantra of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or what Jesus gives us, lay down your life, deny yourself. Don't follow you, follow me. One is Christianity, the other, selfish moralism. Which one do you live under? You see, there's no, there's no true life, liberty, or happiness that you're looking for except in submission to Jesus by faith, taking what he says as true and good for us. Yet, I know in life, we're taught to get to the top no matter what. We're taught to manipulate others in order to further our goals. We're, we're taught to help others look more dim so that we can shine brighter. We're taught to never lose your leverage. You've got to protect yourself. You've always got to have an out. You've got, you've got, you always have to keep that little quick exit. We're taught that we're never to slow down to help others finish the race. But Jesus would push back on all of this and say, he would say, you don't want me to treat you that way. He would say, you know, there's something more important than trying to finish the race first, and that's finishing the race and helping others finish. There's something more than keeping leverage, and that's giving leverage and life away. And in doing so, you discover life. 
But the disconnect between discovering life and giving up life is called faith. You abandon it all when you step into trying to find true life in Christ. You abandon that leverage, but you discover life and purpose and worth. You get to discover grace. You get to discover peace. I mean, think about the gospel. Jesus had every right to pass us by, yet he stops and shows mercy in his love toward us. And friend, it was costly to Jesus. This was incredibly costly. It cost him his life. This is what we see on the cross. Yet you and I, we're, we're the helpless ones and the hopeless ones on the roadside. And we need somebody, anybody to stop and give us life once again. And Jesus does this by laying down his own rights and his own life. And so I encourage you that long before you see yourself as a, as a world changer and as a good Samaritan, see Jesus as the good Samaritan. Before you just try to go out here and, and live ambitious lives for good, man, do that. But man, do it when you see Jesus first being the greater missionary, the greater good Samaritan. Because, you see, we're going to extend mercy to others. And if we're not receiving this mercy daily ourselves, pride creeps in. When we're there to help others who, don't, who, 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 who need something that we no longer need, we're off, we're wrong, and it's coming from really from a weird place of pride. We've got to be constantly receiving this daily mercy as we're loving our neighbor. And by the way, you can't love your neighbor. <laughs> How do you love your neighbor? You can't. You can't do it, but that's why Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die in your place so that you can believe me, have eternal life, be filled with my spirit, and learn. Slowly learn. Big trajectory. Eventually, you're going to learn what it means to love your neighbor. You're going to learn what mercy is. You're going to even learn what it's like to love your enemies. Have you received mercy? Are you receiving mercy today? Are you showing mercy to others, even those who it doesn't make sense to show mercy toward? If not, you're probably not aware of the mercy that you receive from God through Jesus. So before we ask for help to love those who are hard to love, the wise Christian would be asking God to reveal to us just how horrid we are outside of his mercy and grace. To reveal to us just how much mercy we've received for all the harmful and hurtful things that we've done. In other words, we need God to address our pride. We need humility. We need to have God tenderize our hearts in these ways to make us more aware of the mercy we have been given and then to lead us more quickly to show mercy toward others. This is the way forward. And so as we come to communion this morning, aware of this, I want you to be thinking of that word leverage because I believe we all know what that's like. We all hate it when it's over us. We love it when it's in our hands. All of us do. It's pathetic how much we love it. It's pathetic how powerful it is. I want you to think about that word leverage when you come to the table. Because we're the ones, remember, who rebelled against God, Jesus' dad, chose to do our own thing in our own way. We rebelled against him. And Jesus lets go of the leverage. God lets go of the leverage and says, here, son, actually go take their very punishment for them. The very leverage that we could hold over them, I'm asking you to stand in the place of. We can receive this, we can celebrate this at communion, and we don't let it speak into our relationships. I'm not dismissing pain, I'm not dismissing work that has to go on in these relationships, but I'm just saying, friend, if the gospel doesn't impact your relationships, the gospel hasn't impacted you. As we come and celebrate mercy, how can we go back and out of this building not showing mercy, living as if it doesn't even exist? So I want us to think on that. I want us to think on leverage. I want us to think on leverage as we come to the table. I know it's weird. That's odd. But I want you to think about leverage and what Jesus did for you to show you mercy and grace. And then later today, process that a little bit and process the likewise. Let me pray for us.
Father, thank you for leading your son to us, sending him to us. Thank you for letting him be such a great teacher and giving us this, this story that he, I mean, it's as if in the moment, on the spot, he just came up with this and gets to the core, deeper than what we would consider the core. He gets deep, and this is more than holding a door for someone or, or running an errand for somebody. Lord, this has to do with hundreds of years of harm. God, thank you for not only allowing Jesus to teach such truth, but thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's real. And Lord, help us. Lord, those who are under shame and guilt, living under the leverage that's being held by others around us that are close to us, Lord, help us trust you and not try to get even. And when we have a chance to work through that, Lord, help us be humble and not proud. And God, for those who hold leverage over other people, would they be made aware of the mercy that they've received through your work and who they are outside of your intervention, outside of God's grace and mercy? If you do this, it'll change us. I, I, it'll, it'll absolutely change us. But we can't do this by ourselves. We can't change this alone. You must do this in us, for us. God, humble us, basically. Humble us. And make us aware of what you've accomplished for us. And add your special blessing to this time of communion. In Christ's name, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, learning the real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.